As you know, this last uh, few weeks we've been on a, a kind of journey of defining Christian maturity. And we've been using the qualifications for elders as our, our way to do that. Looking at these qualifications as a cluster of, of characteristics of maturity. But today we're turning a corner and we're moving away from that sort of more general look at the Christian life. And we're going to look today, and Lord willing, next week on some of the things that are distinct about elders' qualifications. So this morning we're going to look particularly at an elder's teaching and next week at an elder's shepherding. These are kind of the two main functions that God gives elders. Now I realize there's a danger in a sermon like this. Most of you in this room are not elders, right? And you uh, maybe never will become elders. And so you might think, well, this is just for for the, you know, the four men in the audience who are elders, I can just sort of tone out until lunch. And I want you not to do that, all right? And I, I believe that the scriptures want you not to do that. And that's because, first and foremost, as a member of this church, you're responsible for choosing your pastors. The way our church government works is that the elders nominate men that they believe are qualified, but it's, it's finally up to you to affirm those men, to vote on them. And if the elders nominate someone that you, know, you believe is not qualified, we, we want you to talk to us about that. And if enough of you come and say, look, there's this, this issue with this man, or um, you know, there's, there, his teaching is not really good, then, then that would change the course of our, our nomination potentially. Uh, and if you're going to a church where, where men are being held up as, as elders who are not qualified, or they're not teaching the gospel, it's, it's, it's your responsibility to, to not approve them. And if the church goes ahead and approves them, it may be your responsibility to, to kind of vote with your feet and find a church that, that does have qualified pastors. So it's your responsibility. We, we see this in a few places in the scripture, but one place we could look at is, is Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he says to them in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The significance of this is Paul is putting this on the congregation. They are to make a judgment is this preacher preaching the gospel? And if he's preaching some other gospel, a gospel of salvation by works or of keeping the Jewish law, they are to, they're not to listen. They are to consider him a curse. They're not to entertain that man as a preacher in their church. But Paul expects the members of the church to use their own discernment. And knowing the gospel that they heard, and then holding teachers accountable to the gospel. There's a final reason you're going to be helped by this message on an elder's teaching. And that is that you can grow up into theological maturity yourself. God's desire is that we should all know him ourselves. That we should know God. And that we should grow in the knowledge of God. We should grow in our knowledge of his word. We should grow in our knowledge of Christ. So Paul's priorities for an elder's teaching show us what Paul, Paul's priorities are for every Christian. That every one of us would grow in learning Christ and in knowing the truth of Christ. 
So I hope you'll see this sermon is not just for the elders in the room or the potential elders. This sermon is for everyone. The qualifications we're going to look at, again, are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So let me go ahead and read those for us now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now turn a few pages over to the letter to Titus, chapter 1. In the past weeks, we've read verses 5 through 8. Today we're going to add verse 9, where Paul expands on teaching. So Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We see here that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, that an overseer must be able to teach. And then in Titus 1, verse 9, we see he he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I want you to see there's a connection between the elder's teaching and the elder's life. And if you read through the epistles to, first, to Timothy and Titus, you'll see over and over again that sound doctrine and godliness go together. So an elder who teaches well and even teaches the truth but has an ungodly life is, is disqualified and we know his teaching is undermined. That's just a way of saying everything we've looked at so far about qualifications of Christian maturity, they go with this message on the elder's teaching. We can't think of an elder as as just a teacher or have a a good teacher who's ungodly, right? The elder's teaching is undergirded by the elder's life. But this verse lays out several aspects of an elder's teaching that we need to look at, and we're going to walk through them this morning. So I'm going to use five adjectives to describe and define an elder's teaching. It must be evangelical, scriptural, theological, capable, and confrontational. Let me say those again slowly for those of you who are writing them down. An elder's teaching must be evangelical, scriptural, theological, capable, and confrontational. We're going to work through those five 
definitions. So let's look at this first descriptor. An elder's teaching must be evangelical. I'm using this word evangelical in its old-fashioned Puritan sense of meaning having to do with the evangel, the gospel. That's what the word originally meant, and that's one reason why I think the word's worth preserving. So by evangelical, I'm not saying it, it aligns with a particular group of 20th century or 21st century Christians or a particular outreach ministry. I'm saying an elder's teaching must be of the gospel, centered on the gospel. And we see that in, in Titus 1 verse 9 in the phrase, the trustworthy word. Paul says an elder must hold, must, um, hold firm to the trustworthy word. The word Paul is talking about there, it could be all the scriptures. We see that word logos used that way in verse 3 of Titus 1. But here the word that the elders must hold fast to is something more specific than all the scriptures. It's that faithful word that the apostles have taught. Hold fast to the word as has been taught. Paul's focus here is on the gospel word. Elders are to hold fast, hold firm to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means elders must believe the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and ascended for the sake of sinners and their salvation. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that Christ came to die in the place of sinners, that sinners can be saved by faith in Christ. The rest of Titus 1.9 tells us that an elder's teaching here is in view. He's to hold firm to this word so that he can instruct others in it. But we, we see that with that word hold firm, or the term hold firm, that this is not just a, a topic that the elder picks up to teach. Right? Maybe the way that a, a lecturer at university might be assigned to teach on a particular subject and he just kind of studies up and teaches it. This is not a matter of, of passing intellectual interest. The gospel is the center of the elder's life and faith. He believes it. He's holding firmly to it. So we should call men to be elders and pastors who, who it's clear are fully convinced of the gospel for themselves. They are living that out. They are an example of someone who's consistently believing and applying the gospel to their own life. By applying the gospel to their life, I mean they're, they're quick to repent of their sins and they're full of the joy that comes from knowing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We want men who hold firm to the gospel, who are gripped by the gospel. Well, this is the place where it's easy to see this is not just a message for pastors of churches, right? This is a message for every Christian. We want our, our church to be full of people who hold firm to the gospel. One reason why we have a membership process is to see, does this brother or sister who's coming to join us, does, does, do they hold firm to the gospel? That's, that's a lot of what we spend our time examining new members about. Do they understand it and believe it? Can they articulate it? Do they know they are a sinner saved by grace? Is that how you understand yourself? Do you see yourself as a sinner? who's violated God's good and holy commands, and yet who's been saved by the gracious work of Christ for you? Are you rejoicing every day in the good news that Jesus died to forgive your sins? Are you holding firm to the gospel? 
And do you see your, your fellow believers as those who have been saved by grace? Do you see your pastors as those who need this gospel? I hope you do. I hope you see us first and foremost as your, your brothers, your fellow sheep who've been saved by the, the chief shepherd. And I hope you'll pray for us that we will hold firm to the gospel in our daily lives. So the gospel is the focus, focus of the pastor's life, and it should be evident in the pastor's teaching too. The elder's teaching should be evangelical, marked by the gospel. Now, we might wonder if, if a church like ours is really in, in any danger of calling a pastor who does not teach the gospel, right? You think that would be just not need to be said, right? And I hope that's the case. But still, there are some things we should watch out for. Sort of beware of this when examining a man and his teaching. So first, beware of pastors or elders who teach the gospel as an afterthought. So they, they tack on a gospel presentation to the end of every message, but it's missing from the way they explain God's word and apply it. You want to look at a really extreme example of this would be to look at the, the messages of Joel Osteen. If you, if you endure a, a Joel Osteen sermon on TV, you're going to hear a lot of bad theology, false gospels being presented of, of you know, do this and God will, will help you and give you the life you want. But if you, if you stay to the end, you're going to find that at the end of every message, he's going to present a simple gospel proclamation that's, that's largely true calling people to place their faith in Christ. Now, I don't think we're in, in danger of calling the Joel Osteens of the world to our church, but there are lots of less extreme versions of this, where a pastor's sermons are full of practical and maybe biblical advice, but the gospel is merely tacked on. It's like a little a gospel cool whip on top of the bread. It's not kneaded into the dough. No, we want a man who, who preaches the gospel as the center of what he preaches. So we don't want a man who just tacks on the gospel. Another thing to be aware of is be aware of those who make everything a gospel issue. You'll find this language quite a lot in our contemporary evangelical culture. I think people use this phrase gospel issue because they want to highlight there are important implications of the gospel but we can't confuse the gospel with its implications or with its fruit. As an example, we believe rightly, biblically, that the gospel should change a person's life. If a person believes the gospel truly, they will, they will reveal that in, in obedience and repentance. So, so we might say obedience is necessary in that sense, but obedience is not the gospel, right? No one is saved by their obedience. Some, you might hear someone say that there needs to be a, a clear distinction between law and gospel. And they, they simply mean that we don't want to conflate the commands of the scriptures with what Christ has done to save sinners. That's the gospel. If you're a grammar nerd, you can think of it as indicative and imperative, right? The gospel is indicative. It's a declaration of what Jesus did on the cross that we are to believe and receive. The, the commands are imperatives, right? And the scriptures do have commands in them, but we want to we be careful. and We want to look for pastors who understand and preach 
that the gospel is the saving work that God has done for us in Christ. We want to watch out for, for, for those who might confuse the gospel with its implications or the gospel with its fruit. A third thing to be aware of is beware of elders with a hobby horse. Right? They have orthodox theology, they profess the gospel, they can explain it, but they really want to talk to you about something else. They really want to talk to you about maybe headship and submission in the home or biblical counseling or their political views or some other occupation. These things that they want to talk about may be good and biblical, but it's clear that they are so preoccupied with that thing that the gospel is, is kind of pushed aside to the margins. This is similar to the guy who tacks on the gospel, but this guy may have better sounding theology and better arguments. We want to be careful of the elder who's preaching a hobby horse. Another one, beware of pastors who preach cheap grace. The gospel is wonderful, good news for sinners. It's a message of forgiveness, and we should rejoice in that. But the gospel does not allow us to treat sin lightly. So the grace of God, God's grace and forgiveness, can never be used as a rationale for excusing sin. Another way to put it is that the grace that's revealed in the gospel should lead us to repentance and obedience. It should never lead us away from God into sin and license. So if a pastor never preaches the commands of Scripture, or if his preaching never leads to conviction of sin, there's something wrong with his understanding of the gospel. So beware of a gospel of cheap grace. We should want those who we call as pastors to put the gospel in its proper place. It should be central to the way they teach. They should teach the gospel as the life-giving news that all people need to hear, whether they are Christians or non-Christians. The gospel should be clear and central in the way pastors teach. The theologian Gerald Bray says that the word here that is translated trustworthy means this. It means that it does, the gospel does what it promises to do. It gives new life to those who believe, forgiveness of sins to those who repent, and hope to those who suffer in this world. So the pastor who holds firm to this trustworthy word is convinced of the gospel's power. He preaches not in a way that's trying to manipulate people into making a certain decision or, or walking an aisle or, or doing some kind of act. He preaches because he's convinced that the gospel brings life. He preaches trusting the gospel to do its work. To put it in Richard Baxter's words, the kind of pastor we want is one who preaches as a dying man to dying men, who knows that his life is found in Christ. He preaches the gospel as the power of God to salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what we mean when we say a pastor's teaching should be evangelical. He should hold firm to the gospel. And it should take the central place in his teaching. Secondly, a pastor's teaching should be scriptural. So evangelical and scriptural. Once again, we might think, well, this, this should go without saying, right? But it's worth saying because Paul says it. 
So here in our text, Paul describes the trustworthy word with the phrase, as taught. Well, where was it taught or where is it taught? You could argue maybe for Timothy and Titus, these first century pastors, well, they were taught the gospel by Paul or by maybe another apostle or another apostolic disciple. But for us today, we find this deposit of the gospel in the apostles' teaching, which is contained for us in the New Testament. So the faithful elder doesn't define the gospel for himself. He doesn't have to recreate the gospel from his original exegesis of the Old Testament scriptures. Faithful elders teach the gospel they've been taught, primarily through the scriptures. Or consider this other place where Paul speaks of the role of the scriptures for the pastor. He says this to, to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and following. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now Paul says to Timothy, you've been trained in these sacred writings from your youth. But he doesn't say, and therefore you can move on. You've got that down. Just go ahead and do what you want to do. No, he says, continue in them. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And then he, he goes on to give us this, this verse that we, we turn to every time we want to talk about what Scripture is. It's God's breathed out word, his inspired word. It's, it's profitable for teaching. A pastor's teaching must be scriptural. He must ground himself in the word of God. This is important for how we understand a pastor's authority. The New Testament does say pastors have authority, but the, to the extent that they have it, their authority is tied to their faithful teaching of the scriptures. So just to give you kind of an extreme example, an elder does not have the authority to tell you whether to buy a Honda or a Toyota. An elder does have the authority to tell you don't steal a car, right? It's a thus saith the Lord, right? It's very clear. Well, we can go maybe halfway between these two statements. So we could say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, as you buy a car, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's, that's an overarching command and, and pastors can help you work through that as well as other faithful Christians. What does it mean to do this thing that I, I think I need to do to the glory of God and not to my own glory? The point is that a pastor who teaches the scriptures will not give commands where the scriptures do not give commands. If we give advice as much as we can, we'll try to give advice that's informed by scripture, that has scripture's wisdom. And if we know for sure, we're just giving advice, you know, just our personal experience and not scripture, we're going to try to be careful to say that. Like, hey, this is my take on things. It may not be perfect, but this is kind of how I see it. A pastor who's ruled by scripture is going to be careful to make those distinctions. That's how, one way we want pastors to be ruled by God's word. Of course, again, every Christian needs this kind of grounding in the scriptures. It's easy for us to let our personal convictions turn into laws 
by which we judge others, right? We impose them on others because they've worked well for us, because that's the way we like to do things. One of the ways that good pastors can lead the church well is by helping us all to grow in wisely applying the scriptures and interpreting it so that we can each understand our own preferences and what we believe is true that God says for all Christians. That's an important way we all need to grow and mature. The fact that Paul says that pastors are to hold firm to the word as taught means that pastors need to see themselves first as learners. They seek to be taught by God. To commit to a scriptural teaching then is a posture of humility. I'm not the authority, but God is. And one application of this commitment to the practice of, or to, one of the commitment to scripture is the practice of expositional preaching. That means preaching where we take a passage and the point of the sermon is as best as we can tell the point of the passage. We try to, to mine out what the passage means and then to proclaim it to you. That's the kind of preaching that we normally practice here. And these last few weeks have been a bit of an exception, although I still have tried to be as scriptural as possible in expositing these qualifications for leaders. If a pastor's teaching is mainly topical sermons, then those sermons are going to be limited by the pastor's own wisdom, pastor's own opinions, and the depth of that pastor's theology. So Spurgeon is often cited as a preacher who didn't really preach expositionally through books of the Bible. But Spurgeon is a great exception as a man who is rooted in rich theology, right? So you can get away with a lot more when you're Spurgeon or an English Puritan who, who's been reading the Bible in the original languages for, for decades. But we want our teaching to be scriptural, grounded in the scripture, when teaching is scriptural, the whole church, including the pastor, we're all submitting under the word of our king together. Now, similar to our point about the pastor's evangelical teaching, a commitment to scriptural teaching has to be rooted in a confidence in the sufficiency and power of scripture. So we should look for men to call us pastors who believe that the scriptures have the words of life. That the scriptures are sufficient for our life and godliness and for how we live as a church. They believe in the scriptures. We should want men to, to be pastors who are committed to continually growing in their love and knowledge of scripture. Who are committed to continually growing in their handling of God's word. That's a crucial thing. And one of the scariest things to meet is a Christian who thinks that they don't need to grow. Or to meet a pastor who thinks they have nothing to learn. And we want men, men who are convicted about the scriptures and who, who want to grow and learn more of them. Dad, Pastor Larry, has been a great example to us of this through his whole life, committed to growing in God's word. And I'd commend his example. Now there's a flip side to all this. If the members of a church are not eager to hear the word... It's very unlikely they will call a pastor who loves God's word, who loves to preach God's word. So we have to ask, are you hungry for God's word? Are you committed to growing in your knowledge of God's word? Do you love the scriptures? Now, these questions are not mainly aimed at whether you have a, a daily time where you read the Bible and pray. That's, that's a wonderful practice. 
But I want to, want to get at a deeper question. Is, do you prize the gift of God's word? I want to commend you all because it's a joy to preach to this church because you all are so hungry for the word. I, I, want to, I ask these questions just to encourage you to keep growing in that hunger. Just as Paul said to Timothy, continue on in your knowledge of the sacred writings that you've been taught. In the scriptures, our holy God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself and his saving work. Do you believe that? That God's word, have the word has the words of life? Come to church each week eager to hear it. Prepare your heart by reading the sermon passage or, or some other passage that will encourage you to be eager to hear God's word. When you talk to other Christians... Is the word of God a part of those conversations? It's, it's pretty easy for us all to default to more superficial things, and, and superficial things are fine. But we, we want just to add on to them those weightier matters. How can you grow in making the scriptures the focal point of your conversations with other Christians? Share with them something that you read this week or you heard Alistair Begg preach on the radio. Encourage one another with scriptures. Paul warns Timothy about a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears, and he says they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I think Paul was prophetically describing the internet age. Where we can accumulate for ourselves teachers on our, our podcast list, right, or our YouTube subscription list. What kind of teachers are you accumulating? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to teachers who are ruled by God's word? A pastor's teaching should be scriptural. The next descriptor of a pastor teaching is, is kind of a subset of number two. A pastor teaching should be scriptural and theolog theological. This is another part of what Paul means when he says that they're to, to preach the, the hold firm to the faithful word as taught. Paul, by saying this, was not simply saying, you know, just have, the, have at the Old Testament, just read it and figure out what you need to teach for yourself. No, he, he appoints, he's been routinely throughout these letters pointing them to the sound doctrine that they've received, that they've been taught, that's been deposited with them. They've been entrusted with something. They've been entrusted, entrusted with theology, we could say. Now, theology is, a, is kind of a scary word, but let me explain. This is what the theologian Gerald Bray says about this passage. He said, This trustworthy word has been given to the church in a particular way, which Paul calls the teaching. This teaching is that the Son of God has become a man in Jesus Christ, has paid the price for our sins by his death on the cross, and has risen again to fulfill the promises of God. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again in judgment. We who believe are servants of this heavenly King who is also our earthly Savior. So what this theologian just said in those words is he, he talked about a bunch of theological topics. Right? You could look up these in a, a systematic theology textbook and you could find them under the categories of the incarnation, the atonement, eschatology or the end times, the doctrine of salvation, Christian ethics. These are all theological topics. Pastors must be theologians. Now you may hear that sentence and say, well, pastors must be academics 
And if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to be interested in these academic topics. Or you may take it a step further and think, well, pastors must be boring if they're into theology and academic theology. But that's not what I or Paul am saying. To say that teaching must be theological is to say that pastors must seek to understand the truth, the truth scripture teaches. They should pay attention to both the way that the New Testament formulates the doctrines of Christ and the way that Christians throughout history have formulated these things. And one of the reasons we have a practice that we do of, of each week using a confession of faith is because God has richly blessed us with brothers and sisters from church history who have thought deeply and carefully about these things. And they've put them into, into words and phrases that have stood the test of time. These are ways of being taught, of receiving the faithful word as taught and holding firm to it. Certainly, we should always subject our theology to the light of Scripture. We should examine it. But that doesn't mean we reinvent the wheel with each new generation. Note that nothing in this would tell us that Paul is really geared up about novelty in preaching. He, wants, he doesn't want Paul, uh, Timothy and Titus to do some new thing. He wants them to faithfully transmit the thing that they have received. So pastors teach the gospel they've been taught. This is a theological exercise. What does it look like to have a non-theological pastor? Well, recall the, the things I told you to beware about, about the pastor in the gospel. A lot of those things are theological insights. They're basically theological failures. But to that list, we might add a lack of precision and care. A pastor with weak theology is not going to be careful in the way he applies the scripture. This, this is most egregiously often done with the Old Testament scriptures. When Old Testament passages that were given to Israel as a covenant nation are kind of directly applied to new covenant believers without any regard for how they might be fulfilled in Christ. You could describe one of the basic errors of the prosperity gospel this way. So promises for wealth and prosperity for Israel in the land of Israel are taken out of context and applied to Christians. This is, this is what bad theology does with the Bible. Weak theology leads to errors and how we apply God's word. And in some cases, it can even lead to outright heresy or truths that just undermine completely the gospel. A lack of theology often shows up in an overemphasis on our feelings. Now, feelings are important. God desires us to be joyful, right? And to feel grief over sin. Feelings are important, but they have to be grounded in the truth. You may feel led to do something or have a peace about something that's contrary to God's word. And so you need a pastor with good theology that will say, brother or sister, you're, you're in error here. There's a problem with how you're putting these things together. We need to, by God's grace, have our feelings conformed to God's word, to Christ's way of life. In American Christianity, it's fair to say that there's a lot of theological weakness. Broadly, you might say that we are a kind of superficial people when you think of evangelicalism as a whole. Our roots are not very deep. One great tragedy of pastors with weak theology is that we are robbing people of the joy of knowing God deeply. That's ultimately where good theology is meant to lead, 
to a richer knowledge of God. A catchy way of saying it for theology nerds is that good theology leads to doxology, right? Theology leads to praise. Theology leads to worship. And theology is for our comfort. So just imagine a Christian meditating on the incarnation of the Son of God, that God took on flesh. As you meditate on the God who took on flesh, you you come to know Jesus as your high priest, who, who knows how you suffer, who is in every way tempted as you are, yet without sin. Isn't that encouraging to know a high priest like that? A Christian who meditates on the sovereignty of God knows that the things that they're enduring are not accidents, but they're part of God's good fatherly plan. We can find courage and comfort in our suffering by knowing God. A Christian who meditates on the the doctrine of the atonement knows how Christ took their place on the cross and, and sacrificed himself to pay the penalty for our sin. And by his great work, he's removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That's where our theology is meant to lead us, to meditating on the gospel, to knowing God more deeply. There is joy and strength in knowing God in all of his fullness. That's what I mean when I say that pastors' teaching should be theological. We should call pastors who love theology not as a hobby or a thing to prove how much they know, but because they love the God that theology reveals. Pastor's teaching should be theological. Now, the first of these three descriptors of a pastor teaching have more to do with the content of the pastor's teaching, and the last two we're going to look at have to do more with the, the manner, how he carries out that teaching. So a pastor's teaching next should be capable. He should be, it should be capable teaching. Timothy says he should be able to teach. Titus says he should be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. When we get to this term capability, we're in somewhat subjective territory, right? What does it mean for a man to be a capable teacher or preacher? And I imagine even different congregations might have different uh, criteria of capability. This week I was with a a couple of, a few pastors doing a preaching workshop, and a couple of the pastors there were from black Baptist churches and very traditional black Baptist churches And I just noticed from the few days I spent with them that there's a a huge emphasis among them on on turns of phrases, on saying things well and in a catchy way. So one brother there just couldn't help but alliterate in everything he said almost, you know? And I, I think if I were to preach in their church, I might be judged as not a great communicator because I just haven't developed those skills that they've developed. So they have a different criteria for evaluating capability in preaching and what they expect in terms of communication. I trust that they would still be nourished by the word of God. But every congregation is going to be different. So how do you evaluate capability? Now, I suppose we could give you all a test every so often and just see, are you, are you picking up what I'm putting down, you know? Are the, the other pastors getting through to you? you know, if, if you want to take regular exams, you can let me know that. <clears throat> but I don't know any of churches who evaluate capability that way. I think that the best way to judge capability is to look at the lives of those under the pastor's ministry. 
Are they growing in Christ and their understanding of the word? Do they want to listen to him? Are they eager to come and hear? Not because of his greatness, but because he's effectively preaching God's word. Are they helped in their growth in the Christian life by his ministry of the word? Paul describes the intended effect of an elder's teaching in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 and 25. He says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. When we look at an elder's teaching, we should ask, are those taught by him growing in repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth? Well, that's not something you can see easily, right? It takes time to evaluate that. It takes some judgment. But as we consider this question of able to teach, it requires us to exercise that kind of judgment. One question that's related to this is whether every pastor who serves as an elder should be able to to preach from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And that seems to be saying more than Paul requires. Again, the ability Paul has in mind has much more to do with the elder's godliness, the soundness of his doctrine, and the, the fruit we were talking about a second ago, than his sort of ability to craft and stand up and deliver a sermon. So a faithful elder's teaching may manifest itself in in just one-on-one ministry. We could imagine an elder who's a great biblical counselor, and he's, he's very fruitful in helping people walk through their struggles and their sin. Or we might see an elder who's really good at leading small groups, and the Lord has made him a capable teacher in that venue. And then we might see some that are, that are capable preachers as well. Jonathan Lehman gives a one-sentence definition of what able to teach means. A person is able to faithfully explain and apply the Bible so that listeners grow in their knowledge of Scripture and sound doctrine in a way that produces love for God and neighbor. That's the way we should understand able to teach. Are we seeing that kind of ministry through a brother's life? We should call men who are capable to teach in that way. This will require wisdom and judgment and some time to make assessment. But it's really clear we can't do the opposite of this. We can't call men who are incapable of teaching, men who can't communicate the truth, men who who kind of turn people off in the way they preach the truth of the gospel. Teaching is an essential part of what elders do, and so an elder is a capable teacher. Finally, an elder's teaching is confrontational. By confrontational, I don't mean that an elder is always in your face and looking for a fight. We've already heard that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, that he corrects with gentleness. But we see here in Titus that an elder must be able to rebuke those who contradict the faithful word. We know that there's a right way of saying the gospel is confrontational, right? The gospel confronts us in our sin. God's truth corrects us in our error. And so a faithful pastor can't shy away from these aspects of teaching the gospel. I don't know any of us who just naturally enjoy being corrected. I mean, the the difference is just how much you hate it, right? And how strongly you respond to it when you are corrected. But God's word calls us to a different view of being corrected. Listen to Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. 
it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Have you ever prayed that for yourself? Have you ever prayed that for our church, that we would be a place that says that? A pastor's teaching has to correct. Sometimes that happens from the pulpit. We preach the, the scriptures in a way that confronts us in our idolatries and gives us commands. Sometimes it happens in personal conversations. When pastors correct, again, scriptures command them to be kind and gentle. But there's no way of being a pastor without correcting. So if a pastor is never correcting, never preaching the commands of scripture, never having hard personal conversations, they're not qualified to be a pastor. We can understand this correcting in at least a couple of ways. Sometimes it's correcting sin, saying, brother, you, you need to repent of that, or sister, you're in error there. Sometimes it means more, more theological error, saying what you're teaching is wrong. You know, you're putting the Bible together in the wrong way. Or to point out, I heard you're listening to this brother or sister that you've been reading their book. And let me tell you, that, that book's not helpful. Or here's what you need to watch out for in that book. If pastors are called to correct and confront, then the question gets turned on the congregation. Are you open to correction? Are you open? Are you wanting this kind of pastoring? If we only want pastors who kind of give us attaboys along the way, our desires are not in line with what Scripture says a pastor is. I think behind this question is a deeper question. Do you know the joy of repentance? Are you convinced that there's joy in turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ? Or in some ways you're trying to avoid that repentance and faith in the gospel? You know, to the extent that that you rejoice in the grace of Christ for you as a sinner. To that extent, will you be able to receive correction when it comes? We also see that pastors are called shepherds. Shepherds are on the lookout for wolves who seek to harm the flock. And they're also on the lookout for, for anything, any kind of unhealth in the flock, any kind of distraction from the gospel, any kind of growing, growing division. And they, they confront those things by God's grace, gently and kindly. So a pastor's teaching is confrontational. All of these aspects of a pastor's teaching are for the sake of the church's health and godliness. As dad prayed, for the sake of the church's unity, right? Truth unifies. All of these things are meant to build up the church. So a pastor doesn't exercise his gifts in order to be seen as a really great pastor. It's not to build up the pastor's ministry. All of these kinds of teaching are to be in service to what Christ is doing through the church. And that's how Paul describes pastors in Ephesians chapter 4. They're gifts that Christ has given for the church for the sake of the church's ministry. I hope that this is already, you already know where I'm going, right? Pastors equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what a pastor's teaching is for. One very simple but profoundly important way to apply this sermon is to commit yourself to pray for your pastor's teaching. And I'm not, I'm not talking about myself alone. All of us, all of your pastors, pray for us. Pray that we would be faithful to the gospel. 
Pray that we would be submitted to Scripture and grow in our handling of it. Pray that we would be capable teachers, willing to confront when necessary. Pray that we'd grow in our theological understanding so that we can help you better to grow in the knowledge of God. Pray for your pastors. Another thing to pray for is for more pastors. Pray that the Lord would raise up more men from our church to serve as pastors, whether in our congregation or perhaps even somewhere else. One of the ways that God seems to grow his church and spread the gospel is by pastors being raised up in churches and then being sent out to plant other churches or to take the gospel to places around the world. By God's grace, we want to be a church where that's happening. Pray that God would see more pastors raised up to serve among us and then, by God's grace, to be sent out to plant churches. Pray for more pastors. And finally, as you consider what the Lord says as a pastor in his te- about the Lord's the pastor and his teaching, ask yourself, am I teachable? Right? Not a very flattering acronym, but some people have used the acronym FAT to describe a mature Christian. They are faithful, they're accessible, and they're teachable, right? Are you teachable? Do you want to grow in the knowledge of God? Those are good questions to leave here asking yourself. How can you grow more in the knowledge of God? If there's a way that your pastors can help you do that, we would love to know that and help you grow in knowing God. The reason God has given the church teachers is that through their teaching, we would all grow in repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. May God do that among us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are our teacher. You have not left us ignorant or without the information you need, but you have taught us and you are teaching us in Christ. We pray that you would make us all attentive to that teaching. I do pray for my brother pastors here that you would help us hold firm to the faithful word, that we would be fully convinced of the gospel's power, that we would be fully committed to scripture's teaching. Help us, Father, to grow in that. And I pray that you would help us as a church to continue growing in the scriptures and our love for you. Help us to to take the treasures of theology and, and meditate on them so that we could fellowship with you in a deeper way. And help us, Father, to be faithful, to use all that you've taught us to teach what you've commanded to others. We pray that as we grow as teachers, we would grow as evangelists and you would see fit to save many through the ministry of our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.